So we are continuing our distinct series on lesson number five. Lesson number five, that's distinct in my reactions. That's 109. Distinct in my reactions is what we are looking at today. Okay. So we want to be distinct or different in how we react to various situations and circumstances in our lives. Sometimes believers forget who they are and they act like the unregenerate and uh, it gives God a black eye. And we don't want that, right? Okay, the, first, the question uh, number one then is, when have you felt like you were organized and on top of things? When was the last time you felt that you were organized and on top of things? When you go, on, you go away. <laughs> when you go away? Okay. <laughs> going away, you have everything all down pat and you know. Okay. Anybody else? First thing in the morning when you wake up, you think, okay, everything's going to be great. Okay, yeah. first thing in the morning. All right. When, uh, for me, it's when I complete a project. Yeah. And, uh, and everything goes according to plan. You know, you feel that you're on top of things and you're all organized and everything is is in shape. Okay, let's look at Bible Meets Life. Someone read that on page 110, please. Bible Meets Life. Some of us live according to this. Time management folks tell us these are a great way to track and prioritize the things we need to accomplish. The blessing of such a to-do list is that you can have a target to shoot for. The curse of a to-do list is that it can remind you of what you didn't get accomplished or what remains to be finished. Unfinished to-do lists happen a lot. That's not because the tasks weren't important. It's because things pop up every day you simply didn't anticipate. Yeah. Interruptions. We can stop the interruptions or demands other people make in our lives. But how we react to those interruptions is completely in our hands. Jesus is concerned about our reactions. Why? Because the ways we react in irritating situations will or won't show us to be distinctly Christian. Jesus calls us to a standard that is consistent, honest, and filled with grace. Okay, thank you. So you see what I'm saying here? We are to show how distinctly Christian we are in all of our reactions. Whenever someone rubs us the wrong way, whenever that driver cuts us off on the street, our reactions are supposed to be distinctly Christian. Uh, is it always? No. No. The point. The point is, practice grace and integrity when others make demands on you. That's the point of the whole lesson. Practice, practice, practice. What is it? Practice makes perfect, right? Practice, practice, practice. Practice grace and integrity when others make demands on you. And sometimes we, we get frustrated and, and uh, uh, when our plans, we have these well laid out plans and everything is all set and then there's an interruption and the plans don't go according to the way we want them to go on a small scale or a large scale. 
and uh, we need to be able to exhibit uh, the right kind of reactions that will bring glory to God and bring and show others that we have grace and integrity. Okay, let's look at the passage on page 111. Someone read verses 33 to 37, please. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, even by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it's the footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great gate. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single kiss while you're blind. But let your words be yes. Let your words yes be yes. And you know, you know. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Okay. Is that clear? <laughs> Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything otherwise is going to be from who? The devil one. The, the devil, the evil one. Welcome. Take a seat anywhere. Uh, someone want to lend them a book to share between them, please? And sit next to someone who has a book? Thank you. Okay. So it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're not sure, then say yes or no. Nothing in between. The devil will always trip you up and cause you to say something that you don't really mean or that you're not going to do. And that's why he says it's from the evil one, anything else other than yes or no. But notice the definitions for footstool and swear by your head. See that? What does the footstool say? What does the definition say? When used literally, this term refers to an actual footstool. Here, the term is used figuratively. God has no need of a place to rest his feet. Thus, it represents the earth's complete submission to God. Okay, so there we have a definition of what it means, what that term footstool means. God doesn't necessarily need a footstool. And then the, the other definition, swear by your head. Someone read that one. It was a custom to guarantee the truthfulness of a statement by swearing or taking an oath by invoking God or some sub some substitute for God. Here your head is that substitute. Okay. All right, now when we look at verses 33 and uh, 34 to 36, we look at 33, Jesus began this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount by highlighting two Old Testament texts. Leviticus 19.12, which forbode, forbade swearing falsely by God's name. And also Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2, which warned against breaking a vow or an oath made to God. The Old Testament did not forbid swearing an oath or making a vow to God. The problem was swearing falsely or not following through on the promise to the Lord 
which represented a misuse of God's name. Now today when we think of misuse of God's name, we think of people using God's name as a cuss word or as a swear word. Here in the Old Testament it was different. And then when we look at verses 34 to 36, we note that Jesus' interpretation of those Old Testament texts revealed, reveals concerns about two related issues. Two related issues. One, honoring God's holy name. And two, integrity of speech. To begin, Jesus prohibited swearing of any kind. And so as far as he was concerned, swearing was a no-no. Jesus treated swearing or oath-taking as an attempt to, at manipulation in two directions. To swear an oath to God could be done in an attempt to manipulate God to do something or act in a certain way. While the Old Testament did not prohibit such vows, Jesus also swearing by God's name or oath-taking could mean could be seen as an attempt to manipulate others to believe or trust our words. So Jesus used those two, two things to show that swearing is not good at all. Let's look at uh, the second question on page 112. What motivates us to say I promise? What motivates you to say I promise when you're trying to get something done or with someone? What is your motivation to say, for saying I promise? Okay, that you'll do, or you're trying to guarantee them, or yeah. can to help them if I say it. Okay, and then, okay. Anyone else? Keeping a promise. Okay. Anyone else have, else have a motivation for saying I promise? Once I say it, I'm going to do it. Okay, so you're conveying to that person that once you say it, they can consider it as done. Okay. All right, and basically, that's the main motivation for saying the word I promise. Or you could say, well, I'll do it. But saying I'll do it doesn't carry as much weight as saying I promise. Okay? Because when you say I do, a person says, oh, he may not do it at all. But if you say I promise, they hold that as a guarantee that what they're asking for, what you say you're going to do, is going to be done. When we look at verse 37, here Jesus revealed the crux of the issue. He says, but let your word yes be yes, or your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Jesus emphatically commanded his followers to be truthful. Always tell the truth. Nothing in between. When we say yes, we should really mean yes. Not maybe or hopefully. The fact that swearing an oath can exist provides evidence that lies take place. Lies occur. If lies do not exist, there would be no need for oaths, right? Jesus' forbidding the oaths reveals his intention to destroy lying altogether. 
That's the whole point of what he's trying to, to convey here. He wants to get rid of that creepy little creature called lying. Altogether, completely. The real issue of integrity of life and speech. The real issue of integrity is life and speech. If a person lacks character and integrity, then others will be skeptical of the truthfulness of that person's speech. Most people would cringe at the thought of swearing by God or by God's name. But they might use a substitute title like, I swear on my mother's grave. We hear that a lot, right? We hear that one a lot. Or, I swear on my life. People use that one. The reality is, however, that the moment a person employs a vow to guarantee the truthfulness of a statement, the ideal of transparency and integrity is diminished, if not completely eliminated altogether. Okay, let's look at the paragraph. Someone read the paragraphs on page 112, please. We've all felt the pain of broken commitment or words, and we've all had our own share of failed commitments to others. It hurts in both directions. As we continue with the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus pushing us to examine our integrity through the lens of our words and the promises we make. The Old Testament law repeatedly commanded people to keep their word and be absolutely truthful. But by the time of Jesus, time of Jesus, people were making distinctions in their promises and oaths. Some were super serious, others were not so serious. If someone made a promise using God's name, he was bringing God into the promise. Thus, it became a serious promise he must keep. But if someone simply gave her own word on a matter, it was considered much less serious. Jesus made the point that God is always involved when a person gives his or her word. Whenever we make a promise, we are doing so in the presence of God. Here are two things worth remembering. Be careful what you commit to. Many of us have a tendency to overcommit ourselves. We may have the best of intentions, but at some point we have to develop the dis discipline of saying no. Keep your word when you give it. God honors the person who keeps his word whatever the cost. Unforeseen circumstances can pop up that make it difficult to keep some promises. Even when it hurts to do so, however, the one who keeps his promises pleases God. Okay, so we see two things here. Be careful what you commit to, and secondly, keep your word when you give it, and uh, your reputation will remain intact. And so Jesus' declaration that we should not swear an oath could be considered controversial, but not nearly as controversial as what he has to say next. Someone read verses 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil doer. On the contrary, if anyone snaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Okay, now let's look at the paragraphs on page 113. Someone read those, please. The Old Testament? Yes. The Old Testament records this, eye for an eye, 
Okay, now notice, thank you, notice the main point, uh, one of the main points here. Uh, it begins by saying the Old Testament records this eye for an eye law three times. Why are things repeated? Why do we repeat things? Okay, be alert. So you get the point, right? Yeah. So it's important, right? And so here we see that that, that 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 is repeated three times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. But God's intention was to limit vengeance, not give license to use it. And many people were doing that. The law was meant to make sure that conflict didn't escalate. Isn't that a problem we have in our world today? We have a problem in our country today. People don't know how to resolve conflicts peacefully, and they often escalate, and the result is deadly sometimes, in most cases. And so the law was meant not to make sure that the conflict didn't escalate, but was kept within specific boundaries. Jesus, however, reordered our thinking. He told us we are not to retaliate when we are humiliated or insulted. And isn't that the time when retaliation takes place? When you are humiliated or insulted. Someone looks at a person the other, uh, other way and they say, why are, you, why are you dissing me, they say. And uh, it creates a problem. 
because we are born with the inclination of self-defense and retaliation, we are fighting against our own sinful nature when we follow Jesus in this distinct way. And so don't feel like you're different when you, when you retaliate, it's built in. We just need to reorder our thinking. We need to be distinct in our reactions as the lesson is intended to teach us. Okay, question number three on page 113. What are some practical ways to turn the other cheek in today's culture? Some practical ways to turn the other cheek in the culture that we live in today. Give up your rights. Give up your rights. And, and also, always, I have rights. Okay. Anytime you want to your rights, that's, that's, that's when you have problems. Okay. Okay, so be wrong in order to be right. Walk away. Okay. Walk away. I think it's. Uh, Oh, it was Pastor uh, Simeon Hall who says in his commercial, walk away and live to see another day. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happens because sometimes uh, I had a neighbor uh, uh, who was a prison officer and he went uh, in a store and some guys outside said something to him and he responded. And you know what happened? They killed him. They killed him. He got in a confrontation with the guy and, the guy, and one of the guys outside stabbed him to death. Killed him. And so... Retaliation. Sometimes it's best just to give up your rights. Give up your rights. Turn the other cheek. But then even that uh, sometimes can be difficult because if someone uh, says something to you and you don't respond, what their, their reaction is? You're being disrespectful. Why are you disrespecting me? I'm not good enough for you to answer me? And that creates another problem, right? Yeah. Okay, you walk away twice. Walk away twice? <laughs> okay. I was going to say that in whatever, in the right situation, you could say something kind or nice or complimentary back to that person. It might be totally unrelated to what they have said to you, but you can change the conversation. Yeah. You could. And sometimes it'll just... Arming, but the Lord can use that. Mm -hmm. Good point. Sometimes what they said or, or what you said, you could probably show them that you didn't mean it like that. Okay. Say, okay, you know, I might have something, but it wasn't meant like that kind of thing too, where, you know, you okay. might have said something to them, but maybe if you did say something again, to say, well, okay, I didn't mean it like that. You know, maybe that would just okay. Right. That would be the situation. Trying to save my Rolex. Hmm? <laughs> and the two guys came to me with two guns to take my Rolex. Hmm. And I told them straight. They said, "Give me your Rolex." And they clicked the click. You know, I said, "I'm giving you my Rolex." He says, "If you don't, I'll shoot you." I said, "Let me tell you something, boy. I'm a Christian, and you injure me here today, the Lord's going to come out of you." The Lord will get you. Get this on you. Just, he turned around and left. A kind answer. Is what's this? Uh, this is the bed says a kind answer. Can turn away wrath. Okay. Yeah. The police station was laughing at him for a month. <laughs> <laughs> if you would have shown it, I would, I would have given it. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, 
Doug puts it back on you, eh? <laughs> so you had the police in stitches for a month? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Kind words. Huh? I'm a crazy man. You got to meet my wife. Okay, next question, number four. When do we cross the line between turning the other cheek and in, and living as a victim? When do we cross the line between turning the other cheek and living as a victim? I guess when we think, oh poor me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then you then you then you resort to the pity party. Okay. Anyone else? Okay, the example Jesus gave involves some someone striking you on one cheek, which is which is important. In the ancient Mediterranean culture, the left hand was never used for public actions. It was used for matters of personal hygiene. We know what that means, right? They still use it that way today in some of the Middle Eastern cultures. A slap would thus be delivered only with the right hand. In order to slap the right cheek with the right hand, the evildoer would be required to slap with the back of the hand. A serious insult in the ancient world. The slap was not about violence as, it much, as much as it was about humiliation and shame. Jesus' instructions to turn the other to him also would not be the flight or passive action of most resisting, of not resisting evil at all. On the contrary, to turn the left cheek to the evildoer would be a way to demonstrate that the insult was rejected. If he wanted to hit the person again, he would have to hit with the open hand, the way one would slap an equal. This non-violent response refuses to be victim to humiliation and issues a level of resistance. Without, but, but without resorting to the evil way of the oppressor. As we conclude with verses 40 to 42, we'll find more commands that would probably make us more uncomfortable. Someone read verse 40 to 42. As for the one who wants to see you and take away your curse, and take away your shirt. Get him out of your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. I don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Well, let's look at the cultural background on Jesus' instructions here. In verse 40. Jesus' next illustration involves someone taking a Christian to court in order to take the person's shirt or whatever possessions they had. In this case, he mentioned shirt. 
The word Jesus used is often translated tunic and was the most basic garment for a person in the ancient world to have. The scenario Jesus created would involve a person of extreme poverty who had no other possessions left to take beyond the most basic garments. On a rotten human being who would sue in order to take the shirt off the person's back. These instructions to let him have your coat means to give the scoundrel your heavier outer garment as well. That's what he wanted. On the surface, Jesus' teaching sounds like the passive response of not resisting the evil louse or criminal or crook at all. Think, however, of the scene Jesus painted. If applied literally, now the person would be standing in the court of law completely naked. If you took what Jesus is saying literally. He says, if you take your coat, given given the other garments too. Okay? So if you took it literally, the person who would have been victimized would be standing in court completely naked, having freely given both the outer garment and the inner garment. In a world built on honor and shame, as the highest cultural value, the person stands in disgrace, and that's how they would be seen. Though this might be an example of Jesus' use of hyperbole, it stresses the radical kingdom perspective that Jesus' followers are not to look for limitations to their moral, ethical, and legal obligations, but to fulfill them in their highest spirit and intent. And then for the, for the third illustration of the principle, Jesus employed the image of a, a Roman soldier forcing a dominated person to carry his military pack. It might be difficult for modern Americans or anyone else to understand how detestable this practice was to Jews who were living under Roman oppression. Aside from the fact that the pack of the enemy's tyranny would be disgusting. The pack weighed about 60 or 70 pounds, and the shame of being forced to carry the instrument would be disgusting, to say the least. Despite the indignity of carrying the pack one mile rather than arguing, or arguing refusal or even revolt, Jesus commanded his followers to carry it two miles. While the soldier could force a person to carry the pack one mile by law, the decision to carry the, extra, carry the extra mile would be the disciple's own decision to make. By choosing submission, the disciple could transform a practice designed to demean into a demonstration of what it means to love your enemy. And isn't that what Jesus said? How respond to enemies? Love your enemies. And so if the enemy tells you, compels you to carry something one mile, you carry it two, because you're demonstrating the love that the Lord Jesus Christ told us that we ought to have. Okay, let's have someone read the paragraphs on page 114, please. As if it weren't enough to say we should not seek revenge when someone does us wrong, Jesus went the next mile in his teaching. He said we should do the same thing, go the extra mile, even for those who want to take advantage of us. According to Jesus, we should overwhelm such people with kindness. We tend to think about obedience in terms 
the minimums. What's the minimum amount of stuff I have to do to get by? That kind of attitude shows a heart out of touch with the grace God has lavished on us. Jesus' point is that we shouldn't focus on the minimum. Instead, we should focus on how we can be a blessing to others. To go the extra mile, above and beyond, takes more than willpower. It takes faith. We need to believe three things to go the extra mile. Believe God will provide. Going the extra mile is costly. It could be a coat, it could be some money, it could be our time. It will cost us something. We must believe in God who will provide the coat, the money, and the time that we've given up for the sake of someone else. Believe God will rectify. When we have sacrificially for the sake of someone else, we might be tempted to treat it like a loan. We shouldn't. Much is the same way that we don't seek revenge because we believe God will set everything right in the end. We can freely go the extra mile without the expectation of payback. Trust in God. Who knows what we've done? Lastly, believe God will redeem. What if we go the extra mile and nothing happens? What if the person doesn't recognize our gift of what it costs? We might be tempted to become bitter or resentful or to wish we never made the effort in the first place. But God redeems. Though it might seem like a waste at first, we trust God in his wisdom and power to redeem what we've done for his good purposes. Okay, so again, we trust God, no matter what the outcome may be in terms of what he has told us to do. Question number five. How do we prepare ourselves now to respond when others make demands on us. How do we prepare ourselves to respond now when others make demands on us? Remind yourself where God said the situation, because only God can do that. And simply obey. Yeah, trust me. Okay, we have an exercise on page 115. Uh, Jesus. Jesus' command to go the extra mile is countercultural in today's society. How would you respond to a friend or family member who made the following claims? Choose one. I have to look out for myself first and foremost because no one else will. You can't let people take advantage of you in life. Whenever you give an inch, there will be people ready to take a mile. I have every right to be happy, I deserve it. Okay, so you have to choose one of those answers. Just one. How would you respond to a family or friend who made the following claim? Anybody? Quickly before we close. Are you saying that one of those responses was what you received from a family member? Yeah. And then how do we respond to them? Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anyone? But my number one is a Christian. Like they have to know that God will provide. So if you give somebody your last dollar or something like that, you have to know that um, he'll provide it for you. He'll provide it back. He'll give even more than that. So, I mean, it's about trust and faith, right, for number one for me, because if I give you my last dollar, I have to know that, you know, 
he'll provide for me and have the faith that he will provide for me what okay. I need, you know, even though that's my last. Okay. That's what I would tell them. All right, in response. Okay, remember the point. Uh, practice grace and integrity when others make demands on you. Okay, and that's what the exercise is intended to challenge us with. Practice grace and integrity. Nothing else when others make demands on you. Okay, um, page 116. to be caught off guard this week. How will you respond? Here are some ways to be distinct in your reactions. Remember the, the whole point of the lesson is being distinct or different in our reactions to whatever we encounter in life. The first point we, uh, um, practical application is keep your word. What is one commitment you made that you wish you hadn't? Recommit yourself to keeping your word even though it's going to hurt. It's the first thing. The second one is pray. Is one relationship particularly difficult in your life right now? For you right now? Pray and ask God to bless that person this week. Even better, write a note and let the person know you've been praying for him or her. And then thirdly, go the extra mile. Think back over the past months. Have you missed any opportunities to do good or good for someone on occasion when you chose to do the minimum? Go back and do something extra for that person this week. So we have an exercise there that we can, we can practically apply as it relates to this lesson of being distinct in our reactions and putting the rubber where, where the rubber meets the road. Again, life is about reactions. Things will happen this week you have absolutely no control over, no matter how well you plan. The question is, what happens next? Will you practice grace and integrity when others make demands on you, of you? Or will you hold tightly to your rights and privileges? Your decision.